Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll have to uh, pay royalties. Get on. Hi, Matt. How are you? Hi, Michael. It's Matt. Matt here. Oh, I thought you might have forgot. Yeah, well, I'd hope that you weren't coming back. Matt was in Canada for a couple of weeks. He was at a conference, lucky thing, and then going for a trip around the Rockies, taking some beautiful shots of bears and goats. And It was a sheep, not a goat. I didn't I see any goats. I know. Poor thing. <laughs> So, memory. So this All is the alone part, this, in the moonlight. This is the part of the nervous system, I guess. So we've kind of jumped back into the nervous system. I suppose so. This is hard memory. It's something that we... Well, I can at least admit that I've never really taught. Uh, I've taught a bit of it, but it's difficult. I mean, we don't know too much. When it comes to neuroscience, we don't know too much. Memory probably sits within the psychology realm, probably more so at the moment, than in the neurology realm right. i mean or people, neuroscience or neuroscience people will come see neurologists uh, about issues with their memory but you probably find that once you exclude some sort of disease or pathology that uh, they probably just realize that they need a bit of sleep <laughs> just like all of us i suppose especially you as yeah. a young father we'll probably do sleep next week maybe what do you think yeah as a I, podcast I've, and i've just got back from a different time zone so i uh have a strange circadian at the moment. Yeah, well, just get your melatonin in. Well, I've been having it. And it's been helping, you reckon? I reckon. But yeah, let's, well, Let's maybe. talk about next week. Bit dubious. <laughs> All right. So, should we start with what memory <coughs> is? Do you want me to do is that? Is it a form of learning? Because I think it is. What do you think? Um, I think memory and learning are linked, but I think they can be defined separately. Wow, okay. What Go- do you think? Well, I think if you um, if it's a, it's a form of neurological processing, so you're processing a type of neural stimulus, yeah, and then you react to it. You learn to react to it, whether you habituate 
to it or whether you be positively or negatively respond to it, yeah, um, then that is in a way stored that response on how you would well, that response to the stimulus is a form of storing of information right so you learn from it so if so you basically learning is the acquisition of a new skill or knowledge and memory is your expression of what you've just learned uh, I think it's more than that though you reckon well if you think of it I mean for the let's say humans or mammals, it's a very difficult system to try and study because it's so complex in it. So about memory? Sure, yeah. Both. Yeah. Like to try and piece out from our brain certain processes that will perform these functions is extremely difficult, right? Because we've just got so much hardware. But if you go to a, like simpler animals, like let's say uh, even an invertebrate, like a mollusk or something, where it's got a two-neuron pathway. And so one neuron is a sensory nerve, which is picking up a stimulus. And you probably... Would I be safe by saying that all uh, inputs coming in the body is basically a sensory input, which in a way is all your memories, right? It's a sensory experience or something. Would you, is that... No. You don't think so? No. I don't th- you don't make a memory of every... Sensory experiences. No, no, I was just saying all your memories is based on sensory experiences. Uh, All your memories are. Okay. Well, if we were to use a basic definition of memory, being it's a process within our brain. Neurological. Yeah, Yeah. a neurological process that allows us to uh, receive information. So it's sensory. Encode information. Okay. Store information. Which would be the memory part. And then pull upon that information or retrieve it when needed, I'll say that is a basic definition of memory. Okay. So going back to this mollusk, okay, so it's going to respond to a sensory experience, let's say negative, favorable, or indifferent, and then that neuron, that one neuron, so just one neuron that picks up a sensory experience, right, then synapses, so communicates with a motor, which is going to move something, right? So, if that sensory experience is favorable for that mollusk, it's going to learn, right, a response that is positively associated to learn, I don't know, to go towards it, to want to eat it, or that's a pleasant thing to do, opposed to a negative association, which is to get out of here, to, I don't know, protect itself, or to close its mouth, I'm just, get get what I mean, Mm -hmm. or it habituates to it, which means uh, doesn't really respond to it. So it doesn't think I'll do anything to it, whether move away or go towards it, I'll just ignore it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to me, the learning kind of comes first, but then the memory is kind of the, the backline basis of it. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would agree, but I disagree. But typical. Because learning takes time. But you could do it straight away. You could learn from a something that's painful. So you you can learn from something, and then a memory. So a memory is nothing unless you go back and retrieve that information. So a memory isn't a memory until you use it as a memory, recall it. Right? Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? 
So you can have some sort of... We haven't even basically defined how memories are produced. That's all right. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. And we'll categorize it. But, but I think that we're focusing too much on <laughs> memory and the difference between memory and learning. Don't you reckon? Well, I think, I think it's very, semantics think at the moment. I think very, they're closely interchangeable almost. No, I, I agree. But I, th- I think that... Let's... All right. We'll agree that... We'll agree with your point. All right. Because there's memories that you have no ability to almost respond against. So if you... you What do you mean? Well, you can have a memory like um, fire, pain and fire, and you're not going to be able to unlearn of not sticking your hand in a fire because you've built that association so strongly that you can't unlearn that memory. Talking about a reflex. Well, sure. So reflex is a memory. Yeah. Yeah. Are you saying it's not or is? No, I said it is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, I mean, memories aren't just, I think this is an important distinction or important point to make is that memories aren't just those things you pull upon that allow you to uh, recall the past. Right. Memories are where you solidify certain neurons firing off in a patterned way. Yeah. And this can happen in deeper structures of the brain, not just the cortex, but it can also happen in the spinal cord. Yeah, so like if, I were to, if I were to continually stimulate a neuron or group, group of neurons, or let's just say a synapse within the spinal cord, yeah. if I were to continually do that, I could change the way that that neuron fires off. Okay. And, that cha- and then changing the way that neuron fires off is a memory. That's a stored memory. That neuron has just stored a memory on how it now needs to fire off from constant exposure to how it has been firing off. Yeah, which right? is a learned a learned process, right? That's right. It's so, yeah, and, and that's, that's a memory trace. Yeah. Okay. But it can happen at all levels. All right. Um I was going to say something but I've forgotten. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> so let's move on to possibly well, I guess we've illustrated pretty well that it's very complex and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we haven't made sense it, for the first 10 minutes and that it's not a, just a And I I think you made a good point that it's Memories aren't... Well, actually, I heard a neuroscientist talk about this and she, and she said it's memories aren't a past experience. They're actually uh, a now experience. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so it's not like so you're... So I said that's why we memories aren't just what we think of as a past experience that we are pulling back. That's right, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's they're essentially forming what we're doing now. Yeah, well, well basically, uh, memory is... Well, the type of memory that we're used to talking about, right? Let's just say I pull upon a memory in which I remember playing with a Thomas the Tank Engine toy as a 10-year-old. Yesterday. As a a 31-year-old. When you recall that memory, the term that we should use isn't recall because recall means you're playing back a video, right, of what happened. Point by point, you've got the facts 100% mm. right. You're just replaying. You're reconstructing what has happened okay. in your current context and it needs to fit the narrative. Your brain cares less about accuracy than it does about consistency and it would rather have a memory that's consistent with how you feel and act now Right than whether it's accurate to what it originally was when it was first stored. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because that's exactly what... that's. I mean, 
Because I think the main point we need to get across is that memories are fallible. Right. However, there are instances where people have a memory, and it's not a photographical memory. It's almost a pathological memory where, I mean, there's cases, it's rare, where people for the last, for let's say 60 years, last 60 years, they can tell you everything they've done from every day. So this is called Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory, Mm. which is HSAM. Highly superior autobiographical memory. And these individuals, just like you said, you could say, what were you doing on the 2nd of December, 2012? And they would say, well, it was raining that day and I forgot my umbrella and that made me late for work. And you can even check yeah, these yeah. facts. You can go back and have a look. Now, what's, in, what's interesting Which here, becomes a burden on them. Oh, absolutely. Because it's such a, uh, a detrimental thing. Well, imagine, have. okay, how's this? You, you go to local shopping centre and you park your car. And you need to remember where you parked your car, right? Hmm. You need to remember that. The important thing, though, isn't remembering where you parked your car. The important thing is once you've gone back to your car and you've driven away, is that you forget where you parked your car. Yeah. Because imagine if you're remembering it. every place that you've ever parked your car. W- whilst keeping it conscious. Absolutely. Because it's one thing I'm remembering it. Because we do remember a lot of things that isn't conscious to us. It kind of sits subconsciously that we can pos- possibly access when it's triggered. Yeah. But a lot of that isn't. I mean, like, it's only a certain amount of work in memory that we have currently in our conscious minds at any one time, right? Otherwise, we would be kind of, of course. clouded and not be able to think straight. Yeah, well, every bit of sensory information we're getting now, which may be sight, sound, touch, smell, whatever it may be, we're probably only aware of less than a handful of any certain stimuli coming in at any one moment in time. Far less than a handful, maybe mm. two or three things, right? Even though all of these stimuli are going to the brain and integrating, your our brain is going, you know what? We don't need this to project up to your consciousness. We're just going to push this into the background. Mm. We don't need to store this as a memory because what's the point? Because well, maybe it is. We're just not conscious of the story. Well, well, this is the thing, right? This is why I think memories are important because there may be a question asked, which is, why do we have memories? Okay? And I think memories are important because they help us make decisions for the future. They drive future actions. Consciously or unconsciously. Consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. Absolutely right. And so this means without memory, how do we learn a language? Mm-hmm. Without memory, how do we develop relationships? Well, probably most importantly, without memory, how do we have a sense of self? If you think about who we are or who we think we are at any moment in time, we are simply a, an accumulation of past memories and taking these past memories and basically what we do is put them together put them together and reconstruct our past in the current context and that is who we are Mm. or at least that's who we think we are we do it pretty well don't we think about it well I mean I don't think we have a sense of self I don't think that. Sorry, right, I think we do have a sense. No, okay. sir, I think we do have a sense of self. I just don't think there is an objective self. Self doesn't exist. Self is an illusion. Okay. Do you want to talk about? It? No, then we're going to lose half our listeners <laughs> with the the salt guy, the salt people. 
Who are the salt people? We're Himalayan salt people. Uh, <laughs> we didn't need them as listeners anyway. All right. I think we should just get a bit more structured here and let's talk about... Why, none of the other podcasts have been. <laughs> and talk about maybe classifying memory. How do you think memories could be or are classified? Well, let's maybe classify them in regards to the uh, length. So whether uh, we hold them for... Maybe a few seconds to minutes. Right. Or maybe we hold them for a few minutes to hours to days or whether we hold them for weeks to months to years. To ever. Forever. To ever. Forever, ever. Ever, ever. Forever, ever. 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 All right. Um, All right. So, what are these terms? Just short, intermediate, long? Yeah. I'll probably even just say short term and long term, really. Or maybe intermediate because you had a, a third category, so... Sure, okay, intermediate <laughs> as well. So I'd say intermediate's probably between being able to recall upon information minutes between... Hours. No. I think so. Seconds. That's, fi- that's short. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I was talking intermediate. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, well, let's start with short. No reason why we should start with intermediate. Short's going to okay. be about 15 seconds to about three minutes. Okay, so short term, let's just, for accuracy, just call it seconds. Yep. Okay, all right. And... um. All right. So, do you want to explain any more there? So, short term yeah. is the ability to be able to recall a small number or a small packages of objects. Yeah. Somebody's phone number, uh, somebody's address, and it's usually how many? Oh, maybe between nine to fifteen. That many? Yeah, I would say so. Really? Yeah. I I read up to seven. Really? Yeah. Oh, let's stick with that. <laughs> I'm it, I'm talking for about myself. Yeah, okay. brilliant short-term memory, terrible long-term memory. Well, short-term is technically going to be um, only again only to minutes, but you you might be talking about your intermediate, which I like to have as a third know, category. I can't, can't remember. Okay. Well, so, can, can I just say can I just say very quickly that when we talk about short-term, I know we're going to talk about it in a sec, but the short-term memory, let's just say somebody's just told you their phone number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes in, and predominantly gets stored in the hippocampus. Now the hip, I know that you want to talk about it in more detail in a sec, but the hippocampus is the primary area in which short-term memory will be stored. Or processed. Or processed. Yeah. So, yeah, so maybe sorted out, processed. Yeah. It sits deep to your ears, so your temporal lobe, medial. So there's probably the most medial aspect of your temporal lobe, right? So Which deep, is deeper than... So it's... The temporal lobe, like you said, is closest to your ears. Yes. But you still have to go deeper. Oh, yeah. It's the most deep get, aspect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it sits, it's basically in contact with part of the lateral ventricles, right? Yeah. It's close there. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's part of the, the limbic system, which is an emotional part so of So, that brain. includes the amygdala. Mm. Is the reticular formation part of the limbic system? No, I think the reticular is brainstem. Okay. All right. All right, so we that's sh- all I want so to say about so that short term. Quickly, when you, when you say a number, like a phone number, yeah, um, it could be a how many numbers in a phone number, like a mobile number. He's nine. counting nine. All right, so w- typically when we r- remember a number, you wouldn't remember it in its single points in a way. You would package it up, yeah, cluster it, yeah, and that's trying to again go under those seven clustery objects that I said in the uh, in in the short term memory you can't really exceed many more than seven yes oh seven clusterings I was talking about individual I was talking about discrete numbers 
Oh, did you say 19? I said 9 to 15. Oh, okay, right. Discrete numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, okay. So, because you're, you've got such a, a short period of time to work with this memory, okay, you, you have certain ways of, of kind of putting this information together that you can hold on to it in a better way. So, when you think about trying to retain an, or, or I guess consolidate a phone number, you sometimes cluster it into threes. How do you do it? Or maybe put it in almost a, like a, a song. Not a song, but a, yeah. a rhyme. I always go, oh, four, seven, two, nine, one, double, three. Is that your phone number? That's Matt's phone number, by the way. Okay. Um, Give him a call. But is that right? Is it, how do you remember a number? I think everyone's different, but I would probably remember it in But hun- you, you in do hundreds. something with it, right? Um, I'm, I like you don't, you don't memorize it in just single numbers. Maybe I do. I can't remember. When was the last time we got mobile phones? When yeah, was the last good. time you memorized the phone number? When was the last time you memorized a number that was bigger than four digits? Which is the irony here is um, we used to remember numbers really well, right? So you could remember about probably 20 people. I've still got phone numbers in my yeah, head that probably no longer exist. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, let's not talk about the 900 numbers. Um <laughs> One nine hundred. That's how I remembered it. <laughs> the ironic, or the irony here, is mobile phones have actually made us lose the ability to remember numbers. True. Anyway, um, I guess my take-home point here is: in short-term memory, you kind of do things to to kind of hold on to, to, to more facts, whether it's associating things with it, whether put it into clusters or um, categories. Or is there anything else you can think of? Or put it into a melody? Yeah, I think so. Uh, basically, there's ways that you can promote this, and that's uh, associations. Yeah. So that's, I think, the point you're trying to get across. It is. is that. It is. So you can, you can remember a small amount of discrete bits of information in the short term, but you can also remember large bits of discrete information in the short term as well. Um, and this is simply through this association process. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's what all these memory masters do. Yeah. So they will see somebody and they'll remember one fact about each person. And so they may see Matt and they see Matt with glasses and they may think... Um, cool guy. Matty, Matty, fatty, bombatty with glasses. I don't know right? how that fits into anything you want I to remember. I just wanted to say you're a bit of a chunky monkey wobble guts, that's all. But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> But they may think, but that's how he may remember you. So he may remember you because of your rotundness. So I don't think I'm rotund. <laughs> I think I'm an ectoderm. <laughs> no, what is it called? Not a, is it no ectoderm? Something to do with temperature. Ectotherm, firm. Yeah, I think I'm an ectoderm. That's right, isn't it? The three body types: mesoderm, ectoderm, endoderm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, that was a good memory memory recall. Uh, <laughs> let's just quickly hang with the short term memory. How is it actually neurologically processed? So, we got this. Um, you, you spoke about the hippocampus. Yeah. You got this phone number coming in. Yeah. With nine digits. Mm-hmm. How is that being processed? Well, I think when the obviously. So, are you saying? Okay, where do you want to start? Do you want to start coming into the auditory cortex? Well, let's, not, let's get caught up with all the different different sensory modalities. Okay. Just sem- 
But essentially, what's occurring? Okay, so you're going to have neurons talking to other neurons, right, yeah. and they're going to synapse, and yeah, there's going to yeah. be conversations. Yeah, yeah. Now, you can you've got many more synapses present than you do neurons, yeah. and so you're going to have some synapses which are going to talk to another neuron and stimulate it. Mm-hmm. Some synapses talking to another neuron and inhibit it. So when you have some sort of uh, experience, it's going to fire off certain neurons positively fire off other neurons negatively and this is going to be a a patterned reflection of that experience so that experience can be reflected in these certain neurons firing and other certain neurons not firing now if so for example in the hippocampus okay so if you were to do this again and again and again those neurons, the same neurons and the same patterning are going to fire off and fire off and fire off. And this is going to more so solidify the experience of those neurons. So those, like you said earlier, those neurons will learn that pattern of firing and that will actually become solidified. But that's starting to go into a, a longer-term storage. Okay, so this I'm, is... I'm still talking about the short-term. What's essentially happening while you're still having the ability to just hold your... Well, I think my understanding here is it's essentially you've got a... Uh, a, a neural network of neurons connecting to each other, like in a circuit. What did you call that? A memory trace? Yes. Yeah, right. So you've got a memory trace here, which let's just say f- for simplicity is just two neurons kind of connecting to each other. Yep. And they're kind of going around in a circuit firing, kind of going in a, a circle, right? Yep. So it's kind of, I don't know how else to kind of, Explain it. But it's these constant firing that's going to keep that kind of fact present at the front of your mind. Does that make sense? That, that in short term. Yep. This sometimes can be also referred to as a working memory. Yeah. Okay. So the working memory is not necessarily um, you uh, just obtaining a new stimulus, but you now trying to, let's say, problem solve you're now bringing something else that you might have stored at another time forward into your short term and working with it. Like, let's say, if I was going to say, Michael, what's 25 plus 19? This is a good question. And if I was a mathematician, I'd be able to say 44. Okay, so you've pulled numbers that you've already memorized. You've already got an idea what 25... What was it, 25 and 19? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So you've pulled 25 from an abstract... Memory storage yeah. and 19. Yeah. You've learnt, you've already known what addition is. Yeah. So you've got that. But you, now you're pulling it, pulling it to your front of your mind and you're processing it. So mm-hmm. it's a working process. Yes. But you can't have all this as a working memory right all the time, right? No, that's so right. It only, can, can only kind of deal with certain things at a certain time. So, so is what you're saying this? <laughs> you can... <laughs> You've obviously got different types of memory, short-term, intermediate, long-term. And in my long-term memory, I've got things that I have ingrained. And these things, so these things that I've ingrained may be semantic pieces of information, which are just facts. And the facts may be one, then goes to two, which then goes to three, which then goes, and I've got these numbers indefinitely into my head, right? Yep. They're there, they're memorized. This is semantics. The semantic memory, right, is important because it's part of what we call, did we talk about declarative memory? Okay, what's that? No, okay, we haven't. Okay, so, all right, let's 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 scrap that for a second. We'll go back to it. We said that you've got short-term, intermediate, long-term. Okay. So short-term memory is about 15 seconds to three minutes yeah. and predominantly situated happening at the hippocampus. All right. Intermediate memory is days to weeks but then tends to fade away after yeah. that. Un- unless you can then... 
unless you can push it into long term. And then long term is years or even a lifetime later. And this is predominantly happening at the cortex, right? So we can pull upon it consciously. All right. Now, of these different lengths of time, you've also got different types of memory depending on the type of information that you're processing, right? So declarative memory goes to the details of a thought experience. So this may be... Is it a thought experience or just the experience that you perceive? That's a thought experience. I thought a thought is something you're more projecting from yourself rather than necessarily... It all is. Because it's all, again, reconstituted within your own narrative. Anyway, anyway. Declarative memory are details of a thought experience. So this may be... um, Autobiographical. Autobiographical. So uh, where I was when I try and pull upon this memory, um, who I was with, the time of the day, uh, how I felt, Mm -hmm. what that experience meant to me. All of these are declarative memory. Basically, all the type of memory you think about as memory is declarative memory. The other type of memory... If you're in it. If you're in it. And it's got a context. So it's more abstract things that like, you know, Michael, what's the capital of Paris? (laughs) Yeah. Capital of France, which is Paris. Um... So, but that, but, that's but that but that type of memory. So that's a subcategory of declarative memory. Oh, is it? Yep, called semantic memory. Semantic. So that's what I was trying to bring up. Oh, so okay. semantic memory is simply memorizing facts without you having any spatio-temporal right. um, understanding. So, for example, you know that Paris is the capital of France, or at mm. least maybe you know mm-hmm. Paris is the capital of France, but you don't remember where you were when you learnt that fact, okay, right? So sure. it's semantic. Well, you know you could. But yeah. Maybe. If you did, it's called episodic, which means the, ep- the episode has a context. So that bit of memory, you recall events with distinct spatio-temporal context. So where I was when I did something, I know the time of the day and the surroundings and so right. forth. And so, so for some experiences, they're richer because we've maybe associated more things to it and you could probably do that, right? So As in you're talking about embedding false memories? No, no, no. Like, I could probably say to you, this is just because I, I thought about it in the car ride here, most people might tell you exactly what they were doing and where they were, etc. let's say, at 9-11. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. So, it was a powerful experience for everyone. Yeah. And you've associated so many things with it that you could guess, I know exactly where I was. I, I mean, I was almost going to bed, I think it was around 9 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. I remember it quite vividly. Yeah, I was. I woke up from sleeping and I left my TV on, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember seeing it. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So see what I mean? Yeah. So there's must be powerful associations that you can still do those kind of things. That's right. But it requires a lot of stuff, right? So, just to, f- to finalize these definitions, declarative memory, which is details of a, a thought of experience, is can be episodic. So knowing where you are where you were, all that type of stuff, and semantic, which is just recollection of facts. There's two subcategories of declarative. Then the last type is skill memory, and this is just oh, remembering yeah. a motor task. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. So you play yeah. tennis, right? So when somebody hits a... Um, let's just say bicycle, it's easy. To, everyone let's say tennis. Play. Let's say somebody <laughs> somebody hits... No hits, one rides their right, bike playing wait. tennis. I know. <laughs> let's say I hit a backhand. I, let's say I hit towards your backhand, Right. As the ball's coming towards you, right, you measure, you instinctively measure the speed and the angle of the ball subconsciously. You change your grip of the racket, you change the movement of your body, and you automatically 
position yourself. This is if you're good at tennis, right? <laughs> you automatically position yourself, right, to be able to hit the ball back. All of this is working from skilled memory. You make me sound like Federer. You're by no means <laughs> close to Federer. So these are those definitions. No, I think that's great. Are you okay with that? Yeah, that is. I good. think we probably should have started with that thirty minutes ago. No, no, I think that's fine. All right, because that's just another category. The take-home message here is. Um, memories could be classified in terms of length of storage, short, intermediate, long, and then the type of information stored. Yeah. Um, declarative versus skill-based. And there's yep. a lot of different categories in declarative. Yeah. 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 All right. So I guess the first thing we've con- we've almost finished is short term. Just to essentially the take-home point is it's kind of this ongoing neural circuit, but it can only go around that circuit for a certain period of time, and then you're going to move on to some other short-term facts and you'll forget about it. That's right. Is that fair? I'd say that's fair. Now, how do you process it into intermediate form? This means week, minutes to weeks. It requires uh, a bit more solidifying the process. Yes. Instead of just having a circuit, you're now playing around a bit more with the synapse. Yeah. So the synapse is essentially, and this is going back to action potentials and neurotransmission, uh, mm. essentially the... One of the nerves that's synapsing on, let's say, nerve one synapsing on nerve two, which becomes, let's say, the nerve nerve two being the stronger memory. Okay. The nerve one has to send a neurotransmitter across to nerve two. Okay. Like, let's say, what what neurotransmitter are we going to use? Glutamate. It's excitatory. All right. So glutamate. Now, for glutamate to to be released. It needs to have an action potential go down that neuron one. It needs to have calcium influx in to tell the vesicles to release glutamate. Do you agree? Yeah. Right. Now, when you're processing a a form of information, a sensory experience, you might, the first time you hear it or the first time you see, you might react quite strongly to it. Then it happens again and again and again. And each subsequent time the response to that is less and less and less and less until maybe you habituate to it and you don't respond anymore. Mm-hmm. So this would be maybe a negative memory where you have lost ability to be able to respond to that stimulus anymore. Okay? Does it make sense so far? Yeah. Now, the thought is there could be a second ne- neuron that acts on that synapse which then invokes a response to that synapse. Okay. So, should we have said with the previous one, it should have been an inhibitory neurotransmitter as opposed to excitatory? No. Because okay. it's just, the that that synapse has habituated to that stimulus so much. Kind of like, this is probably a ex- bad example, but let's say the first time you've, um, you had caffeine, your experience to caffeine was quite profound. I was four. <laughs> and then, over the years... It's less and less and less until some some people doesn't have any response to them. They can have it and then go to sleep, right? So they habituate to it or desensitize to it, right? Now, still on their synapse, and calcium is the issue. They think that you just lose that ability for calcium to influx in to then cause the vessels vesicle to to release. So what's this got to do with memory? Well, I'm getting there. The other neuron, the third neuron, which acts at that synapse between the one and the two, okay, can then, let's say it's an excitatory neuron, okay, it has a response to a noxious stimulus, let's say like a painful stimulus, okay, it can then impact 
through another neurotransmitter, let's say like serotonin, act on that on that calcium signaling, which tells it to really go wild with its calcium. And that means that neuron one continues to do its thing to neuron two. And that means that whole communication between those neurons continue to go and that memory is solidified at least longer than the short term now into minutes to weeks. Does that make sense? So it's it's got a chemical basis to it now. Yeah. So instead of just this circuit that just goes fire, Didn't have a chemical fire, basis fire. to it before? Yeah, but it's very short term. As I said, if you just bring on another form of facts into it. So you know you know how when some people you're trying to remember something and someone else starts saying other things and you really can't like remember. right now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like someone, yeah. you remember a number or something and someone just keeps saying yeah, other yeah. numbers. Yep, yep, yep. Your minds can't process all this and then you lose it, right? Yep. But this intermediate memory is your, there's a chemical basis to it, okay, which is now establishing a, a network or a memory trace, like an established pathway, okay, which is going to cement it. So if you think of it almost like the pathway is like a, a paddock with long grass, if you drive over it once, there is a memory trace, a trace of that car tracks. But if you leave it long enough, the grass will just grow over it again. You won't see it again. But if you keep going over it, keep firing it, continue and continue, mm-hmm. it's going to make it a an established now, road. Now, is what you're saying with that s- the other neuron coming in, is that similar to when I say I need to, I meet you for the first time and I'm a stranger and I need to remember your name? And I look at you and I go, okay, his name's Maddie. And I go, how am I going to remember that? Okay, Maddie Fatty. I go, okay, Maddie Fatty. <laughs> Maddie, when I see him, I remember when I look at him, he's a bit chunky. So it's Maddie Fatty. Is that because of that point that you're making? Yeah, Mad- Maddie. And that third is, neuron. I could try and remember Maddie, but that's only firing this at one particular point potentially. But if I say Maddie Fatty, then I've got some other thing that can trigger that, which solidifies that. Me- so is that another. Synapse coming on. It's an association. Okay. Yeah. Is that what you'd mean? I think so. It's a facilitated neuron which adds an additional association to that synapse, which strengthens it, mm-hmm. gives it a more powerful um, network. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you can still forget that again if you're not re- redoing that response. Yes. Over hours, days. So weeks. basically, the more things you associate with a fact, the more pathways you have that could potentially reinforce that memory. Yeah. Right? Yep. So it's basically if if you said, you know, you've got this car driving over a field and it's made some tracks, if you were to redirect the traffic to go over the that same grassed field, redirect traffic coming from somewhere else, it could also lead to tracks in the same area. Reinforcing it. So me just remembering your name, Maddie, is just one car going over, mm. which I probably won't stimulate very often if I just go Maddie, Maddie, Maddie. But if I go, okay, Maddie's a fatty, then that's going to be something. And if I think of fat and I go, oh, fatty reminds me of Maddie, right. then that's another car driving through. Yeah, possibly. The analogy is quite ordinary, but sure, I'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we need to move. So I guess my point is going from the short term is just this quick circuit that can be altered very quickly and then that association's lost to move into intermediate, which again is minutes to weeks, um, and that's moving at a chemical level. Okay, so there's a 
chemical basis for this memory. Yeah. Okay. To now move into a long-term memory. Yeah. So this is now, what, weeks to This ever. is years. This is years yeah. for potentially for a lifetime. Okay. So now we're going into really heavy cortex um, storage. Yeah. And the thought behind long-term memory is there's actually now anatomical slash physical changes. That's right. So do you want to talk about that? Sure. So basically, in order for a short-term or intermediate-term memory to be converted into a long-term memory, one, it needs that this synapse or group of synapses, whatever it may be, it's, it, we don't know, right? But this area that's synapsing, conversation needs to be reinforced that's the first thing so it needs to be constantly activated if it's constantly activated this initiates change and this change like you said is chemical changes this change is molecular this change is physical changes so it actually changes for example the amount of receptors that are Are present long term now Talking about long term. Oh, okay. So we'd move to long term. Sorry. Yeah. Didn't you just ask me about yeah, how this potentiates? I thought you're still going moving through. No, yeah. no, no. I'm saying okay, to so long term. F- yep. So you got chemical changes. You got physical changes. These physical changes could be the amount of receptors, or how easy these, or, or how uh, sensitive these receptors are to picking up a neurotransmitter, for example. Um, and it could be anatomical changes as well. So even the structure of the neuron changes. Yeah. And so they've done also that with electron microscopy, which is the greatest resolution of microscopy you can do down to what nano level I know I've seen the thickness of your glasses I reckon they give them a run for its money Matty fatty so Bo Batty <laughs> banana so fanna. electron microscopy is at the nano level correct uh, yeah or nano or pico I'm not sure anyway by looking at the neurological synapse by an electron microscope they can actually see the increased number in vesicles in this long-term... Vesicles hold the neurotransmitters. Yeah, yeah. So yep. that's increased. Cool. Um, so not only the release, but the number increases... Of what? Of the, the vesicles down there. Oh, cool. Okay. The um, presynaptic terminal, so the end of the neuron one, let's mm-hmm. say, that changes. And actually the end of the neuron two changes, so the dendrites form these kind of spikes yeah which then give it ability to make more receptors cool. which respond better to the neurotransmitter right so it's it's much more responsive to that communication between that two neurons and something else that happens is that you start to transcribe certain proteins right which would be the vesicles right well in in part maybe but they could be you may be turning on certain genes that are creating certain proteins and these proteins may have some storative function for memory but really maybe or is it we don't know it's just all that all right let me tell you let me give you an example why this may be the case all right go right so there was a study i actually read it maybe what an hour ago so it's intermediate <laughs> uh, I read it about an hour ago, which is about uh, these. So they were able to. So this is what they did with the study. They took some marine snails, and what they did was they shocked it. What told it a scary story? <laughs> yeah, that's right. They said boo. <laughs> they shocked it, and when they shocked it, they associated a shock with a tap. Right? With a what? A tap. A tap of the shell. Oh, so okay. that when you just tap the shell, they, get they retract for around about 60 seconds. Right? 
So if you did this... Oh, so this is a negative association. Yes. You shock them and tap at the same time and they retract into the shell so that when you just tap the shell, right. they retract. So this is like so the opposite of Pavlov. It is It is the same thing. It's the same behavioral changes, yeah. right? But one's, one's for food, one's, positive, yeah. one's for... Okay. Um, so if you tap the shell of a snail that did not have these electric shocks, they'd retract for maybe... 10 seconds and oh, so they'll come still back do out, it. right they still do it but not for as long right so the time frame is different so what they did was of these snails that were electroshocked and would retract for 60 seconds they took the RNA from those snails so DNA turns into RNA RNA turn, uh, it creates genes and turns into proteins they took this RNA okay. and they injected it into snails that hadn't had electroshock therapy anywhere in particular I don't know. It's a mollusk. It's, it's all just one big gooey bit of gunk, right? So they injected it in, <laughs> and then they tapped the shell of this snail, and they would so retract for the same time period as the snails that had the electroshock sure, therapy. Sure, sure. But that doesn't necessarily say there's any great deal of information there that's making a like a memory per se. It might just be it's doing everything we just spoke about, making proteins that make more receptors or alter the dendrites. But or the point is that... It's amazing. Through it's potentially, really potentially through the injection of this genetic material, they were able to have an engram of memory. So engram is a physical substrate for memory. Yeah, that's, so that's very cool. They were, maybe. Like, there's well, a lot and, of they, and similarly, they did the, the same study where they did an electron microscopy and looked at the... Which I think it was in snails as well. I must love snails um, for memory. Well, it must be easy to work with. Um, they found by blocking protein synthesis that long-term memory is not gained. Yeah. So, interesting. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, there may be some physical... I mean, there's got to be a physical component to memory, right? It's not just mind. It's yeah. brain. It's physical changes. It has to be. Very cool. Very cool. All right. So, what about when people lose their memory? Okay. What's that called? Um, you forgot? It's amnesia. Amnesia or... So, dementia is not that? No. Okay. No, dementia is an umbrella term for, for Cognit- progressive cognition. neurodegenerative diseases. Right, okay. But amnesia is the loss of memory. There's two types we should probably talk about. It depends on the direction, right? Yeah. So, retrograde amnesia. Retro so means backwards. Backwards. So this is where you basically uh, have an inability to recall prior events or so prior that memories. W- so that would mean prior. All prior right. To now. So bring in memories forward. Being able right? to pull upon prior memories, yeah, yeah. which yep. would make sense because you're trying to get something established and bring it to the forefront. Yeah. Okay. Whereas, um, antegrade. Okay, is, amnesia is making the new memories into long memories. That's right. So, so retrograde is pulling upon already previously established memories. Yeah, and anterograde is an inability to store immediate or long-term memories, or even short-term, sometimes. All right, have you got cases for this? HM. All right, well, like the clothing store. No, that's HM. H.M. was a gentleman in the 50s. He had... What was his name? Oh, like... Hermbold... Maternbold? (laughs) So that's why we call him H.M. Because you can't remember his full name. Do you remember his full name? No. 
Why not? Herman. No, no, no. HM is Henry Gustav Molaysen. Molaysen. I knew right? it was that. Molaysen. Henry Gustav Molaysen. HM. Okay, so Her- Let's just say what's HM. his name? Herbert. Herman. Herman. No, Henry. 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 So Herman was the researcher that did the... He was in the 50s. Yeah, 57. Okay, and he had quite serious epilepsy. That's right. He had some form of retractory seizure. Which seemed disorder. to be the focal points were in his temporal lobe. Mm-hmm. And so to counteract this, they removed both, so bilaterally, both of his temporal lobes. The medial aspect. What sits in the medial aspect? Hippocampus. Oh, right. interesting. So what, what was the result? Well, what was the result was basically, uh, post-operatively, mm. H&M had anterograde amnesia. Okay, and again, what does that mean? That's he couldn't create or establish any new memories. Okay, so he could pull upon old ones, though? Uh, anything prior to three years pre-surgery. Okay. So three years pre-surgery, couldn't remember anything. But everything prior to that, he was all good. Okay. Untouched. But interestingly, like uh, other associated functions like language, remember I said without memory kind of language? Mm. Well, he he was fine with proce- like perceptual processing. He was fine with language, fine with attention. And his skills. semantic knowledge was fine. So his facts, yeah. um, skills, motor, all good. All fine. All fine. So he couldn't tell you what he did yesterday. That's right. He couldn't tell you what he did this morning. Mm-hmm. But also... Because what, what else would you say about memory? I don't know. It's not really past, it's present. Oh, that's right. So he couldn't tell you what he's likely to do tomorrow. True. He would, if he were to, he, was pro- he would probably do it in the context of what he's done years ago in the past. Yeah, but that's difficult because you can't pull upon that even. Because like, who can go well, back? Well, he could. He could pull upon past memories and he, what he would probably do is put himself... So, his sense of self would potentially be an older, an old sense of self. So maybe if he was in his 50s, maybe he saw himself as though he was in his 30s. And so he would, what he would do tomorrow may be what his 30-year-old self would do. Maybe, but I think it would be really difficult to piece all that back without the, the now memory. Because I don't think you'd have the detail to go back 30 well, years. Well, how did they know that he could pull upon memories prior to three years ago? Well, you could ask abstract things, you know. But again, know, you telling, just telling something about your, I don't know, what you did 30 years ago, sure. But to, to try and encapsulate everything that was kind of in the moment of 30 years ago would be very difficult. And other people who have hippocampal... So the hippocampus is that medial aspect of the temporal lobe, right? And yeah. it's in the limbic system. Part of the limbic system. So it's emotional. And they think that part of the basis of it is both pain and pleasure. So it has a processing of good things and... Uh, pleasant or unpleasant. Painful things, um, which probably increases the arousal of the, of the experience and likelihood of memory. Mm-hmm. But it also gives you the ability of um, temporal and spatial. So what's kind of happening in the um, environment, in the landscape. Now, people with... with problems in the hippocampus so not like this guy who had it removed but people who have let's say a stroke like lack of blood flow to the area or uh, epilepsy and their hippocampus is dysfunctioning and you get them to let's say you say imagine you're sitting on a beach 
you know, in a tropical island, um, describe it to me. They can't do it. Mm. They can only do kind of very basic abstract things like saying, oh, I feel sandish. It's it's all blue. Whereas you, you could give a lot more detail because mm. you've your hippocampus has ability to really make that whole thing rich. From like previous experience. Yeah, like temperature, light, sound, everything, right? Mm. They can't do that. Um, now, the hippocampus is thought, well, once was thought just to be all about retaining and kind of recalling and processing memory, but it's also been shown to have a, a big job in the spatial environment, so the navigating you in space mm -hmm. and so they first found that out in rats where they had essentially the rat they had new uh, little electrodes in their brain in their hippocampus and they would get the um, rat to run around a maze or a, a big circular oh, I don't know not paddock but a big circular maze not a maze <laughs> but just an open space yeah right? and they had some kind of reward system at one aspect of it so they, I guess you could say that they enriched them in a certain area of that maze or that environment, right? Now, what they found when they took that away is when the rat went to that part of the environment, so let's say the top right, let's say like a clock, um, the northwest of that environment, the, these neurons started firing. So it had the ability, the hippocampus and in the rat, had the ability to know where it is in space. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And so they've studied humans in this space because it's, you know, you can't stick electrodes into humans and do this same experiment. No. It wouldn't be ethically allowed. No. Right? So what they did is they put you in a MRI scanner or a, even better, an fMRI scanner. So Functional. That, so that's going to show your brain lighting up yep. when it's active, right? And they get people to play video games. And there's one video game in particular that's very useful. Um, it's it's kind of like Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> nice. but it's the British version. Yeah. Remember what that is? No. Um, you Grand Theft <laughs> uh, Horse-Drawn Carriage? Uh, it's It was called, or it is called, The Getaway. Do you remember that? No. Sony made it. Yeah, but on what 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 console? I think everything. Get away! Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Maybe it was just in PlayStation. Anyway, they constructed it to be exactly like Central London. So every okay. street was exactly like that. Yeah. Okay. And so they gave people PlayStation Two the task of navigating them through that. Okay. And then they would register their um, brains while they're doing this. Yeah. And because they knew it to a certain degree, when they were kind of manoeuvring through the streets, their hippocampus was very active. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, pulling upon the memory, the spatiotemporal memory. Yeah, right, exactly. And when they did the same thing, because this is control people who don't really have an expertise, they draw it upon people with um, super super memory of London and that's the cab drivers and I think a, a requirement to be a cab driver in London you have to have memorised 
London. London. <laughs> I think you've got to do a test, which takes you five years or something to do. And then you, if you pass it, then you can be a, a better driver. earn good money as a bloody cabbie there. Do they? I don't know. I said well, you better. You'd want to, wear. Yeah. Um, anyway, so they they brought these guys in um, to the FRI, yeah. and they yeah. found that their posterior, so their back part of the hippocampus, was humongous, like the size of a grapefruit, size of a, probably a lime, which Michael's oh, eating. Oh, size of a lime was not the size of a lime. <laughs> well, you said a grapefruit. Yeah, I was being ridiculous. Size um, of a lime. Michael's actually eaten a lime. That's why I said it. Uh, no, you make me sound like a freak. Anyway. So they have a huge posterior <laughs> hippocampus. They, oh, okay. Like okay. you said, hippocampus. Um, now, there was one guy in particular, and this is, I'll finish on this point. Good. <laughs> they found a guy who had a stroke and knocked off his hippocampus. It just fell out. And he was an ex um, cabbie in London. Oh yeah. So he already had a huge hippocampus. He, forty years cab driver, so he, he knew the streets intimately. But they knocked his hippocampus off by the stroke, and then they brought it, brought him into the fMRI, and they found that he couldn't do it anymore. But he somehow could process the big streets. Yeah. So he would go back. So somewhere the ones he'd probably used more often yeah, than exactly. the others. So it's more embedded in the cortical long-term Precisely. memory. Yeah, very good. That's Interesting. Mm. So cool. he would go to the big streets and try to find his way because he'd probably find it familiar. But then as he got to the smaller streets, he would lose it again. And Crazy. then he would go around and around until he gets back to the big street, know where he is, and then just continue on like That's that. That's nuts. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect segue from your analogy of driving over a particular path. The more you drive over a path, mm. the more you remember it. I think we need to talk about false memories and yeah. the way we can distort memories. What do you think? All right, let me start this off by saying to you then, Michael, what Go was, on. What was the fir- what's the first memory that you can recall? I think it's sitting in my lounge room as a toddler maybe and, and looking into the kitchen. That's it. I was just looking into the kitchen from the lounge room. I think Thomas the Tank Engine was actually playing in the background. But again, I could be making this whole thing up. Okay. What about you? What's your earliest memory? I really can't. I really don't know. Exiting the worm? Not quite. I have some ones, but I really think it's just come either from people telling stories. Graduating high school? <laughs> yeah. Um, or... I don't know, probably looking at a photo book or something and then you're going, oh, I can't remember that. store it. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think the first point to make is that memories can be a dangerous thing. And the reason why is because memories can give us false confidence in our current beliefs and attitudes. And this is because, like I said, when we pull upon a memory, we are editing that memory. Every time right. you rethink of a memory... You're actually editing that memory to fit your existing narrative, to fit the current context. So every time you pull upon a memory, you're changing it. That's the point. Every time. You're changing it. And that's why it's quite dangerous because we pull upon it and we may discuss it and we still think it is as untainted as the day in which we stored it. It is not a video playing back at all. It is not a retelling it is by no means a retelling. What it is, is the fact that we're basically reconstructing. So, 
So, so put this into the context of how they are fallible. Then. Okay. So, I could insert a fake memory into your memory bank through simply through suggestion. So we could talk. So I could. I Love could to ask, see you try. Yeah. Well, I could ask you a, uh, a question about like Fort Knox about your past, and I could through the way I question, I may be able to implant certain things that may have happened so that the next time you recount that story next time you recount that story right <laughs> sorry Matt decides to chew some Reese's Pieces and hold the microphone right to his face so I apologise for all that crunching <laughs> now you made me forget what I was talking about embedding the memory that's right falsely. I could I could embed a fake memory can you memory. give an example like, okay fine was there a study done with this oh heaps okay. alright uh, let's okay so so Couple studies. Let me talk about one. Do the there one with um, which one? All right, let me just go through some, and if I don't talk Disneyland about Disneyland one, I don't know the Disneyland one. That's Disneyland one. Universal Studio one. Yeah, I don't know this one. What is it? You do your one first. <laughs> okay, so wh- you think about people who have witnessed a crime that's been committed. Okay, witnessed a crime that's been committed, and they then go to a police lineup. Well, firstly, they may talk to a police officer. Now. This is really important. As soon as somebody's witnessed a crime, what should happen is they should write down exactly what they experienced without anybody asking them questions on the crime. They should just say, here's a pen, here's, a paper, here's some paper, you now need to talk exactly about what has happened. Okay? Okay. But what happens is they have conversations with people. What did you say? Was the person tall? Do you think the person was tall? Uh, yeah, ma- yeah, maybe the, yeah, maybe the person was tall. And now simply through that... The person is probably taller than you thought. When so, when you're in a stressful situation, so somebody's holding a gun, makes things even worse. Your memory is even worse on the Why? situation. Why? Because anxiety leads do? to poorer memory consolidation. What's that do? Well, what does it do? <laughs> yeah, good good point. <laughs> I, I think it's just a clarity of mind, right? Got a lot of noradrenaline, sympathetic processing going on in your clarity of mind to be able to receive and process. So, a couple of other studies, right? So, what you can do is, this is quite common for psychologists to do this. You get a number of participants or subjects to watch a video. Then they read a description that's on that video, but what you do is add a couple of details in the description that weren't in the video. Then you get them later on to recall what was on the video. And what you'll find is that a good number of those participants will state the details that you put into the description. And they swear that they saw that on the video. That's implantation of false memories, first of all. Second thing that can happen is you have people that go to lineups. And depending on the individuals in the lineup, again, you can talk to the individual and say, was the person, again, tall? Or did the person wear a coat? Are you sure they didn't wear a coat? Was the coat that they wore covered in fur? All these types of things can taint somebody's memory. Because what they'll do is they'll try and picture what's been stated. And simply picturing what's been stated could be could be falsely embedded mm. in the memory they're trying to recall. Now, there's another type of thing you can do, right? So you there's other type of false memory tests where you get subjects and you give them a, uh, a list of words and these all these words will relate to a theme. So this theme may be sweet foods. Right? Maybe sweet foods. And there's a whole list of, of like words. Like Right? Like Reese's Pieces, chocolate, um, peanut fruit, peanut butter. They may all be on this list, right? And then you get, then you take the list away and you present them with another list of words, right? 
Now, on this second list of words, there's going to be some words that were on that list and some words that you've added, right? Now, let's just say on the first list that you presented, you didn't put the word sugar, right? But in the second list, you put the word sugar. Now, they're going to swear they saw the word sugar because all that list was sweet stuff. And they're going to go, yeah, I definitely saw the word sugar. And what you're going to find is the majority of people are going to say, no, I definitely saw the word sugar yeah, okay. when it wasn't there. Again, implanting false memory. What they did, you know those people, uh, the, 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 uh, what was it called? The highly superior autobiographical memory people. Yeah. You ask them what happened a day in the past and they'll tell you it was raining, didn't have an umbrella and made them late for work, right? They did some experiments to test whether these individuals had a better, mm. um, uh, weren't... Discerning. A, had a more discerning memory mm. and you see if you could or could not implant mm, false memories. So they did this exact same test about yeah. the sweet list of words and so forth. They were just as corruptible, if not more. Wow. And the reason why, again, is because the brain in itself is more concerned over consistency than it is on accuracy. So it just needs to make sure that the narrative is consistent. And yeah. sugar is consistent with the narrative of being sweet okay. as opposed to exactly what they saw. That is cool. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So it's also showing, you know, uh, other important points about where parts of the brain where memories recalled and reconstructed and so forth yeah that is cool alright well, anything else Matty we've gone for an hour yeah. is, is there anything else we haven't spoken about yeah pretty much everything else memory related um, what are, uh, diseases dementia for example yeah alright so dementia is an umbrella term for progressive neurodegeneration of the brain um and it usually is associated with cognitive decline. So it's an umbrella term for progressive neurodegeneration associated with cognitive decline. This cognitive decline may include language, may include memory, may include motor task or skills. Okay. Right? Now, there's different types of dementia. Vascular dementia, toxin-induced... Vessel-driven. Toxin-induced dementia. Alcohol. Alcohol. Now, Alzheimer's is the most common. More than 50% of dementia uh, people diagnosed Louis with dementia... Body. Lewy body dementia, yeah. An uh, di- NFL one. Okay. What's um, that one called? Uh, encephalopathy. Yeah. Um, traumatic. Yeah. What? Something like traumatic. Chronic. Chronic encephalopathy. Chronic something. TCA. Um, That's a good movie if you can watch that. What's it called? Concussion. Great movie. Is it called Concussion or something like that? It's a good, I can't remember. It's a good documentary on PBS, but then the actual movie with Will Smith. Yeah, good. Brilliant. True so, story. So Alzheimer's is the most predominant form of dementia, right? And Alzheimer's is characterized by neuronal loss. So if you were to weigh a brain of somebody without dementia after death, obviously, and a brain of somebody with dementia after death, so post-mortem, you'd find that the dementia brain is far lighter because it's lost far many more neurons. Okay. And the neurons that are being lost are going to be cortical neurons, i.e. long-term memory. Outside, yeah. Hippocampal neurons, i.e. short-term memory and other neurons dispersed throughout the brain. So that's why memory loss is associated with dementia, because neurons mm. that may be firing off, keeping a memory, are dying. Okay. And some of the particulars about that, they get, what, tangles? So, yeah, so with Alzheimer's, you, you got what's called neurofibrillary tangles, yep. or just called tangles. And so that's... In the actual neuron? Yeah, so in the neuron, you've got microtubules. Okay. These are just protein tubes that carry 
proteins and substances from one end of the neuron to the other. Okay. They should be nice and straight and they should easily carry these yeah. um, so substances. Tangled up. Sometimes they can get tangled up. So okay, you get so the, the processing will be and the metabolic state of the neurons will be doesn't affected. work very well. Yep. So the neuron basically stops got working. Protein um, accumulations as well, right? Yeah, so the proteins that are being made by these neurons are being released. Uh, they start to uh, aggregate with one another mm. and start to misfold. And these are called plaques. Okay. So and you've got neurofibrillary tangles yep. and plaques. And both of these together end up leading to the destruction and death of neurons. Which leads to the shrinking in the brain. That's right. Okay. And at this point in time, there's not a great deal that we can do. No, not really. I mean, you, acetylcholine is also associated. They may think that the amount of glutamate that's been released, glutamate excited toxicity. So glutamate is a neurotransmitter that excites neurons. Um, and that if you release too much, you can overexcite a neuron and lead to toxicity right. and lead to death. That may be an issue. So maybe some sort of glutamate intervention, maybe. Um, but acetylcholine is also reduced. Okay. Acetylcholine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Right. Uh, and so what some sort of medications that may be provided are acetylcholine esterase inhibitors. Yep. So acetylcholine will be released from one neuron in the synapse to the second neuron. And it's usually eaten up within seconds by something called acetylcholine esterase and recycled. So if you were to have acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, it stops the eating up and recycling of acetylcholine at the synapse and ju- it just stays there for longer. Increasing the likelihood of acetylcholine choline binding to their receptor and firing off, allowing a neuron to do its job as opposed to not do its job mm. and then not have memory, not have cognitive function and so forth. Okay. Yeah, and so it's a pretty devastating disease and as you said, with the aging population of at least the Western world, um, it's become quite a prevalent. Most common neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's mm. disease is the second most common neurodegenerative yeah. disease. All right. Well, anything else we should cover? Oh, mate, we could go on forever, but I think maybe we should leave this one here. Any cool animals? Uh, I think armadillos are pretty cool. <laughs> With memory? Oh, no, 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 sorry. <laughs> That's not what you asked. Okay. Wh- which animal has the best short-term memory? Goldfish. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Humans are basically one of the best. What else? Um, uh, long-term memory. Dolphins have the ability to be able to remember different dolphins over a 20-year stretch. So yeah. they could pick up their long-lost friend from 20 years ago. Yeah, but so can I. You're not a dolphin. Well, well. <laughs> um, there is a very cool bird called the Clark's... Nutcracker. Yeah. I think it's called a nutcracker. There's also a Western Jay. But the, what these Of birds, course there is. What the, what these birds do is they have I think it's pronounced catches, which is just like packages where they store food. And they can kind of like what we thought squirrels could do, you know, put acorns away for the winter. Yeah. Um they do the same thing, but they put distinct packages in different spots. Um, hide it there and apparently this is where they get 90% of their nutrition from. So how many packages can they hide? Uh, 22 to 33,000. And remember where they all are. Remember where they are. Crikey's! Five to 6,000 different places over approximately 15 or what's that? 15 miles which but is these what? these birds would have like a brain the size of a pea. It must all be 
m- memory associated. So this is potentially hippocampus because it gives you the spatial awareness. The burns of a hippocampus? Well, potentially. Why not? Um, Fair enough. All right. Okay, last thing I want to state is this. They did a study of about 18,500 people to determine um, what may be associated with poor concentration and poor memory. Mm. And they found that the four most common things associated with poor concentration and poor memory is depression, okay, low education, less exercise, mm. and hypertension. Well, yeah, exercise is a huge thing. And they, they found that exercise in four hours after learning a task is the most efficient. So I do. I learn a, I learn a new fact about the human body. I do 100 push-ups. No, four hours later. Yeah, I do it. For, it takes me four hours to do a hundred push-ups. <laughs> so doing it straight away, there isn't a benefit. Well, there probably is, but it's not as good as having a break, because by then jumping straight into an exercise, then you are u- using your cognition and everything to perform the exercise. Interesting. And like people who did two tasks, so um, they got a, a group of people who they gave them something to learn. Let's just say random facts yeah. for an hour. Yeah. Okay. They got one group to then go and do a computer activity like fill in the blanks versus a group that could just sit out and chill for an hour. Yeah. Not sleep, but just rest. And then they would come back and they found the group that could have the rest retained more of that information. No. Oh. There you go. So, I guess... Sleep's important. Sleep's very important. Um rest not being anxious not stressing yourself are you talking to me um and don't and this is for all the students out there don't study with your phone next to you yeah or computer on facebook on twitter on what's all the other ones snapchat all that turn that off basically don't do all night you. don't do all nighters either definitely don't all, do not all study nighters. hard and then have a big long sleep because why michael and we might talk about this next week. Because when you sleep, yeah, it's oh, I thought you replaying, asked me a question. It's replaying all that stuff you just did. So all that synapses that you just made yeah. in short term, intermediate. It's actually repaying that. Mm. What like in ten speed? Yeah. And so it's you insane. need to sleep to form the long term memories. Yeah, so you're cool? actually doing yourself a big injustice yeah. by thinking the longer you stay up, the better you're going to be doing. Yep. But we can talk about that next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. Okay. I hope that uh, helped. Hopefully that, and that will help you remember memory. <laughs> now, look, before, can you please go on iTunes, give us a nice five-star rating, or don't give us a rating at all. Say that we're the best. Leave a comment. If you want to contact us, please do. We've had a number of people contact us. It's wonderful to receive emails from Apparently people. Apparently, I don't talk loud enough. Yeah, Matt obviously doesn't hold the microphone close enough to his face, but I get he gets overpowered by obviously the most powerful individual in the room, which is myself. You can contact <laughs> us via email. We don't have a, we don't have a cell. No, good point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, feel free to contact us any way possible. See ya. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.